Welcome to the Empowered Homes podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to be a resource to connect church and home by growing strong families. Hey, this is Bobby. A special episode today. We have our senior pastor at Kingsland Baptist Church, Ryan Rush. He uh, got on a phone conference with Jim Dennison. Jim Jim Dennison is a leading voice on culture and uh, religion and just incredible. They talked about the coronavirus and the impact of all of this on our world and our Christian worldview, it's, it's just really good. It's a special, special episode. You will enjoy this, I promise. Uh, so check it out. If you have any questions, uh, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at empoweredhomes.org or find more great resources at empoweredhomes.org. Hey, Pastor Ryan Rush here, and we have an opportunity today to talk to one of my mentors uh, from afar. He probably doesn't even realize how much impact he's had. He's been a professor of mine, and of course, I follow him like so many others online every day. Dr. Jim Dennison holds a PhD and a Master's of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, hosts and leads the Dennison Forum now with hundreds of thousands of people counting on him for information every day through his is uh, Email Blast and uh, so many other resources and author, speaker, uh, so much, so many other things I could go through. But uh, Dr. Dennison was kind enough to join us today on a chat to talk about some of the things that are happening right now. So, Dr. Dennison, thank you so much for joining us. It's my honor to be with you today. I'm so grateful for you, grateful for your friendship, for your faithfulness, and for your ministry, my friend, and praying for you and for your church in these days. Thank you so much. Well, I'm just going to jump right in. Many of us uh, including me, by the way, have referred to this in emails and correspondence and videos as an unprecedented event. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, it's it's really not historically an unprecedented event. It's unprecedented for all of us right. in our generation. But uh, what what do you see in history that reflects what we're experiencing right now? Yeah, thank you. I have been studying pandemics over the years, as uh, and then most recently in the context of this as well. And you're right, it's unprecedented for us. I was born in 1958. You could go back to 1957 would be the last time you'd see an influenza pandemic that would even rival this on any level at all. So from my lifetime, certainly this is unprecedented. You go back to 1918 to what's known as the Spanish flu pandemic in which 50 million people died, obviously a larger number than anyone's thinking about right now. It didn't start in Spain. It's just it first became known in Spain. It was during World War One, and the nations that were fighting each other were closed to the press and to the media, but the Spanish were neutral, and so they were telling the story, and that's how it got known as the Spanish influenza. But by some estimates, it actually killed more people in World War One than the war itself did and was a horrific thing. So you can go back to 1918. If you're thinking in Christian history, of course, you could think about something that Martin Luther had to deal with. Plague was in the 14th century and then two other times as well. Came to Wittenberg in 1527. Martin Luther and his pregnant wife, Catherine chose to stay behind and minister to those that were suffering and dying rather than fleeing, as so many others did. Then you could go back into patristic and to uh, early church history. There was a plague in 160 AD, another one in the 240s, in which Christians stayed behind in Rome and in other cities and ministered to those that were dying when they were being abandoned by their own families. Christians told the world, we're not afraid to die. We know what happens when we die, and we know we have a great physician. 
And so they were able to stay behind on that basis and serve others that, uh, that their own families and friends were not. Rodney Stark, the famed sociologist, believes that it was that faithfulness at that point that played a dramatic role in the rise and the growth of Christianity in the second and third century to the global movement and phenomenon that it became as God redeemed that. I've often said God redeems all he allows, and one way he has done that historically is by giving Christians a chance to minister to those that suffer at a time like this. Wow, I love that. God redeems all those, all that that he allows, and it will be interesting to see. We cannot even guess all that God's up to right now, but I have no doubt that he's going to do just that. I also know, Dr. Dennison, you have traveled far more than most people uh, globally, and you've seen a lot of different cultures and people groups. Uh, I would imagine, and just that, that Americans have been spoiled in a sense uh, with the the comforts that we have. So we're we're maybe less equipped than other nations to to deal with something where everything's just sort of taken away from us. How have you seen that other nations have dealt with suffering different from the average American? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really on three levels. I guess I could start on the positive level and say that the existentialism, the individualism of our culture is actually helping us in this context. One of the reasons the Italians are having such a horrific experience with this is they live in multi-generations, typically in the same home. They're much more communal by nature. It's much more difficult for them to socially isolate than Western cultures have been. And so that's probably to the good relative to this crisis that we're so individual, so existential in the way that we go about orienting even with our family, much less our friends and our larger culture. But on a negative level, I've mentioned two other things. I remember years ago, I was in Cuba. My first time down there, I've been down about 10 times, and I was talking to one of the pastors down there one evening, telling him how sorry I was for the persecution they were facing, the suffering they were going through there, and telling him that I was praying for persecution to lessen, for suffering to lessen in their nation and with their people. And he asked me not to do that. He told me that it was persecution and suffering that was purifying the church that was causing them to realize who the real believers were, that was causing them to realize how much they needed God. And so these Cuban Christians were, in a sense, welcoming. They certainly didn't want there to be persecution and suffering, but they saw how God was using it to purify them and strengthen them. It's Tertullian's statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that, uh, that these Cuban Christians and persecuted Christians in China that I've met have said the same thing. I was in Beijing some years ago and was meeting with pastors in the underground church. And I was again telling them how sorry I was that they were having to worship in such clandestine ways and pay such a price to do this. And they said the same thing the Cubans did. And that was that the pressure they were facing, the oppression, was purifying them and causing them to realize how they needed to focus on what matters most, focus on the eternal over the temporal and the spiritual over the physical. And so they felt that it was a very valuable thing. So that would be a second answer to your question. As believers I've met who see suffering as a means to spiritual growth and spiritual purification on a level I'm praying that we will. A third answer would be in relative to other religions. If we're thinking about Buddhists or a Muslim or, or Hindu, there just isn't the same sense of an imminent God. In Buddhism, there's three different kinds of Buddhism, and they typically don't have a sense of a personal God. Hindus have more than 4,000 gods, but no Lord. Of course, Muslims have this idea of Allah is very distant, a God of judgment and justice. They just don't have this sense of a God who cares for us, who loves us, who's intimately present in our lives. Even the Jews that I've met in Israel, have been to Israel more than 30 times over the years, they have a legalistic God. Our tour guide will often start the first day by saying, every day we lay 613 commandments on our backs and we try to carry them around all day. 
They have this sense of a God of justice and scales. They just don't have a sense of a God that suffers with us, a God that hurts with us. Whereas you and I know, John 10, 29, that we're in Jesus' hand. So nothing can come to us without getting through him. Anything we feel, he feels. Anything we suffer, he suffers. So in contrast to the world's religions as I've experienced them, we have a sense of the presence of God that they lack. That's really good. Jim, I'll be more personal I have, I told our congregation on Sunday that I have found in my life that every crisis I've ever had has been a crisis in theology. You know, I've mm. learned that I don't know as much as I think I know about God. Mm. Uh, sometimes I've placed him in a little box and sort of outlined him to my own preferences. And I realize he's greater than that. And I don't fully understand him at all, but I, I trust him anyway, mm. which leads us to, I think the most important question is, that's coming up or will come up with every Christian listening and every mm. seeker, honestly, where is God? This is the, the, the ultimate question. During evil and suffering, what is he doing? Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? It's the question Job asked. Uh, it's the question that you find all through Scripture. It's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the largest question we face. And we Christians are susceptible to it, as you know, Ryan, on a level other face really or not, because we believe three things all to be true. We believe that God is all-knowing. We believe that God is all-loving. We believe that God is all-powerful. And yet, if you'd added a fourth, we believe that evil is real, that evil exists. Well, other religions, if they believe in a God at all, don't believe that he's all-knowing, all-loving, or all-powerful. They may believe one or two of those who don't believe all of those. Some versions of Hinduism don't believe that evil exists. It's the doctrine of Maya, evil is illusion, they would say. But we come along and we say, no, God knows everything you're going through. God knows all about coronavirus. God knows all about this pandemic. God loves us, so he would not want there to be this. He's a father who loves his kids. I don't want my kids to get sick. You don't want your kids to get sick. Our father doesn't want that. He's all-powerful. He could, Jesus healed lepers. Jesus raised the dead. So he's all-powerful over sickness, yet the sickness exists. How do you reconcile that? That's the issue. That's the question. So as you know, we could talk about this for days and days together. This is, uh, you, in fact, I've taught semester-long seminary courses specifically on this. I've written four books on the subject of evil and suffering and, and trying to address the question we're looking at. I think in this brief moment, I would suggest that there are models. There's no such thing as one answer because there's so many different kinds of suffering, just as there's no such thing as cancer. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a category, that, that's, a, that's an umbrella, they're cancers. Uh, breast cancer isn't colon cancer, and colon cancer isn't bone cancer. There are various approaches to these things. So one response is the free will approach. It's the idea that God gave us freedom, and when we misuse that freedom, the consequence is not God's fault but ours. I don't see that as the primary approach here. We don't believe anybody caused this epidemic. We don't believe anybody caused this disease. This isn't a smoker that gets lung cancer or a drinker that gets cirrhosis. So I'm going to set that aside for the most part. A second approach is the soul-building model. God uses suffering to grow us spiritually, and I certainly believe that's in play here. As we mentioned earlier, God using this to draw us to himself. In fact, I believe this is an unprecedented opportunity for the gospel as our secular culture comes face to face with the fact that we can't do this by ourselves, that we are in fact mortal, that in spite of all of our technology, all of our economic means, all of our political might, we are susceptible to a virus one nine hundredth the width of a human hair. It's bigger than we are. And God can use this on a soul-building model to draw us to himself. The future hope model, third model, would say that God will in the future do things we can't see in the present. 
We're trusting him for that. We're trusting him for vaccines and for, and for antidotes. We're trusting him to use this in a way that will make our, our people closer to each other. I, I've been noticing in recent days that the partisan divides that have been so vitriolic in our culture seem to be less now than they were before. We're getting along a little better. It's the nature of having a common enemy, and we're hoping for future good that we can't see in the present. A fourth model is the present help model. God, We've mentioned it already. God suffers as we suffer. God hurts as we hurt. But then the umbrella I placed over all of that, a fifth model, is the one I mentioned briefly. God redeems all that he allows. Because God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful, everything that happens has to be at least by his permission. If he won't redeem it for a greater good, he made a mistake in allowing it. But he's perfect and he can't make a mistake. Therefore, by definition, everything that God allows or causes, he must redeem for a greater good. Now, I'm not saying I'll understand that good this side of heaven. The Bible says that we look through a glass darkly, but one day face to face, and one day we'll know even as we're known. I don't understand all the good that's come from the Holocaust or even my father's death or my oldest son's cancer. He's well now, but it was the worst tragedy our family has been through. I can't give you the good that outweighs the bad in that, but the fact I don't understand, it makes it no less real. I have no idea how the technology works whereby you're in Houston and I'm in Dallas and we're having this conversation right now. I'm too heavy to fly, so why aren't airplanes too heavy to fly? You know, I have this question every time I get on one of these. The fact I can't understand it makes it no less real. So what I would say to your people and to anybody at the end of the day, God is redeeming this for greater good. Let's join him in that. Let's turn the speculative into the practical. And let's ask, how can we use this for greater good? How can we reach out to lost friends to, to encourage them to trust in Christ at a time like this? How can we strengthen our social fabrics with each other? How can we deepen ourselves spiritually? I just finished recording a video on spiritual disciplines. I believe a time like this is a great time to focus on solitude and meditation and Bible study and prayer and journaling. I think it's vital for us to join God as he redeems this for the greater good that he's up to. That's so good. And I'll tell you something else. I believe that this, this crisis thus far has already revealed, at least, it's revealing all those other things that we have placed our trust in yes. by the Lord. So at the very time that we think, oh, I, I, how can we trust in a God that we, we can't understand what's happening? He's the only one that we can trust. He's the only right. one that sustains. And everything else is shaky ground. Mm -hmm. If you rely on sports, that's gone. Entertainment, that's mm -hmm. gone. Uh, mm -hmm. gatherings that's gone wealth that's almost gone for mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of things right now that have sort of been set aside that we have relied on besides the lord and he's the only one that sustains us that's uh, right I'm, i want to be clear i'm not saying he caused it for that purpose i know you're not saying that either but he will use it for that purpose he wants to redeem it for that very purpose to show us i mean we had you know by some measures the strongest economy in history well that was two weeks ago you know now we're talking about recession or worse. Now we're talking about a trillion dollar bailout. And I'm glad we are, by the way, trying to do what we can to help those that are being most disadvantaged by this. But it just shows us. Think about where we were a month ago and where we are now as a world, not just as an individual or as a nation. This is not like Ebola that only affected a certain part of the world. This is not like the Great Recession that affected us financially, but not medically. This is the first thing, certainly in our lifetime, that is that all-encompassing. And again, to your point, shows us how desperately we need God. So well said. And, you know, Jim, you mentioned briefly your son's cancer and how that impacted you uh, and how unexpected this was. And yet you and your son, Ryan, just recently finished a book mm -hmm. uh, recently and I believe providentially no, called Making Sense of Suffering. Yeah. That seems so timely right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? 
Yeah, thank you. It's again an example of God knowing a whole lot more than we do. Uh, we decided some months ago, several months ago, that it could be helpful perhaps to uh, give folk a book that would be accessible around the very models that we're talking about right now, the very ideas, and doing it in a biblical context where it could be Bible studies. It wouldn't just be a theological exposition, but it's biblical content, biblical studies, things people could do in small groups, things they, they could do in their own devotional time, perhaps help for pastors and, and messages as well. Uh, and because of Ryan's experience as a cancer survivor, he's finishing a PhD in church history right now. And so he was able to help me in doing this to think about some of his own experience and certainly some of the historical background that's informed this. So this essentially is eight approaches, eight ways of understanding this, eight ways of making sense of suffering uh, with the belief that as we study scripture around these concepts, we'll be drawn closer to the Lord, we'll make better sense of our own suffering, and God could use us to help other people as they go through difficulty as well. That's awesome. That book is available, by the way, at denisonforum.org. You can check that out and uh, order a copy uh, so it can be sent to you later on. But right now, uh, as we close, Dr. Dennison, first of all, thank you so much for taking time. You mm. turn on your computer in the study in the midst of all, everything else going on. I'm so grateful and our people are grateful. Um, but I, I've spent enough time with you now to know that while the world knows you mostly now as a philosopher, as a writer, as a national communicator, you are a pastor at heart. Mm. And so as you think about the families that are anxious right now, or suffering, or concern, uh, what would you say to them today? Yeah, first of all, we're with you. This is something all of us are facing, from the president to you and me today, to every person, really, in the human race. By one uh, epidemiologist standard, 40 to 70% of the human race is likely to get this virus at some point, is at least one projection. We're in this together. And so the first thing we want to tell our people is that God is with you and we are with you. This is not your problem, this is our problem. Don't let this make you feel isolated. Don't let this make you feel as alone as social distancing might cause you to feel. Fight against that. Push back against that. Use spiritual disciplines to grow in your relationship with God. Use the technology of the day to be more connected with family and friends, to stay connected in the kind of community and body of Christ that we are. But our first point would be that we are in this together. And my second point, and this may sound, I don't know, a little fatalistic, but uh, whatever happens with this, Christians really do know what those believers in the second and third century understood. We're not afraid to die. We're all mortal. We're no more mortal today than we were a month ago. Uh, coronavirus is not demonstrating anything we shouldn't have already known about the fact that we are all one day closer to eternity than ever before. And we only have today to be ready. If we'll live every day ready for, to, to meet God that day, that's the best way to live that day. Even if you and I had another 30 years or 50 years, the best way to live today is to make certain we've forgiven the people we need to forgive or We've sought forgiveness from those we need to seek it from, or we've gotten things right with God if there's a place where we're not in alignment with his word and his will, to live every day as though what were our last day. I'm, of course, not predicting that relative to this virus. No one knows uh, what that could be, but it does make the point that whether it's this or something else, you and I, each of us, are mortal. We're each one day closer to eternity than we've ever been, and if we'll live every day as though what were our last day, one day we'll be right, and we'll be so glad we did. Amen. And if nothing else, this certainly reorients our priorities. And for that, even with everything else happening, we are grateful. Dr. Jim Dennison, uh, you can learn more about him at the Dennison Forum and make sure you subscribe to his email. I was going to say daily email blast, but lately you've been doing it a couple times a day with everything happening. So we're grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Honored to be with you today, Pastor. God bless. You too. 
Thanks for listening to the Empowered Homes podcast. For more content and information to connect church and home, please visit empoweredhomes.org.